0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: I'm Richard Atkinson, a former chancellor of UC San Diego and former president of the University of California. And I'm here at the home of Walter Monk, uh, a uh, professor emeritus of the university and uh, we're going to be talking about the origins of UCSD. Uh, Later, we'll comment about this house and this very room because it does play a key role in the beginnings of UCSD. Before I start, I just want to comment that uh, Walter is one of the great scientists of his era. He's an oceanographer or earth scientist. He's received just about every award that you can receive. There's no Nobel Prize. In oceanography, but he's rec- received the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in the earth sciences. So his career in science is remarkable. But as I said earlier, our goal today is to get Walter's thoughts about the origins of uh, UC San Diego. Walter was born in Vienna in 1917. By 1939, He was here in the United States completing his degree at Caltech. Walter, can you tell us a little about the period between your birth in Vienna and uh, being here in the United States at Caltech?
0: Oh, yes, Dick. Well, I'm so glad you're here to talk about this. May I make one small correction? I've had the great luck of having a Navy chair supporting me ever since I'm 65 years old, which is now 32 years ago. (laughs) And the Navy chair has made it possible for me to be active. So I'm not emeritus. I'm a research professor, and I have a secretary of the Navy chair. Yeah. Very unusual. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, I might add to that that, you know, obviously oceanography is very important to the Navy, and the fact that he holds the Navy chair on oceanography is a very special honor Uh, for his role throughout uh, his career uh, in supporting naval activities. Yes.
0: And I'm born in Austria, which is not a typical country from which oceanographers come. And I was really exiled to America because I was not doing well in high school in Vienna. And uh, I was skiing all year. I loved to ski. I had an uncle who was a Pioneer in Austrian skiing, and uh, I spent my time in the in the in the mountains. And so, when I was uh, earlier than you say, Dick, in '37, I was at, uh, we had some people for dinner in Vienna who said they had a boy just like Walter who didn't study, and they had found <laughs> the ideal school, a prep school in New York State on Lake George, called Silver Bay. And I was exiled to Silver Bay School. And a year after I got to Silver Bay, which was great, we had a ski club and I was president. (laughs) And my mother was deeply disappointed. (laughs) So my grandfather was a Viennese banker, had a little private bank. and, uh, And they had a branch in New York and a branch in London. And I guess what mother really had in mind in exiling me to America is that I had a chance to get a job as a banker in New York. It was a great opportunity. And so after I graduated from Silver Bay, I did work in the bank for two years in New York, starting at the bottom and hating every minute of it, and doing a poor job, and making mistakes. And buying, self selling. <laughs> and they, and eventually, and I was wise enough to go to night school at Columbia to keep my academic career going. And so after two years, mother gave up, it gave me a check, said, do what you want. And I bought a De Soto and drove out to Pasadena because I'd fallen in love with the Spanish street names San Marino and So and so on and appeared after driving out at the dean's office at Caltech and said, I'm going to be a student here next year and he said, Let me pull your file. I said, There isn't any file. (laughs) I never had and he was so amazed at my naivety, he said, Well, I'm gonna let you take a entrance exam and if you can pass it we'll consider it. And for the first time in my life I worked hard for months. And one of the magics of my life is that I passed the entrance exam and became a student at Caltech, a very happy one.
1: Pretty pretty uh, random process of getting from New York to uh, Pasadena and Caltech, but uh, it was a very exciting time at Caltech for you in terms of the academics?
0: Yes, it was, and I had some wonderful courses. I worked with a geologist professor named Buwalder, And we were taking a course on the uh, geology of California. And he told us about the San Andreas fault system and big earthquakes that had occurred in the past. Small class, like at Caltech, I think about seven, eight people. And I said, well, if we have a big earthquake with a big fault displacement, will you take us on a field trip? And he said, oh, of course, because it hadn't happened for 25 years. Next week was a big earthquake. And we spent a week traveling the various uh, places where there had been a big fault displacement. And it made my life over again. I fell in love with the geology of California, camping out, seeing the high Sierras in the moonlight.
1: So it was a spectacular time to be in the field of earth science.
0: That's correct. You
1: get your degree. You've had this remarkable experience at Caltech. Why Scripps Institution of Oceanography?
0: Well, n- not for a very good reason, Dick. I had a girlfriend at Scripps College. Another uh, random event here. Thomas Anderson. Her grandparents were had the house on the corner of Torrey Pines and, uh, and uh, what's the corner up there. And uh, he, her grandfather, her father had been a had brought out the newspaper in Dallas, the Scripps Howard, and I was dating her. I needed a job for the summer, and the only job possibly to get here in, in La Jolla was at, at the Bug House. I don't want to there. go too
1: far in all of this, but how did you meet her up in Pasadena? She well, was she was at, at
0: Scripps College. Oh, she was at Scripps College, and okay. we would date people at Scripps College. Yeah, and so I got myself. I've Presented myself at the director's house, Harold Sverdrup, and he said, "Yes, you can have a job." And I appeared and had a wonderful time. We would pick abalones from the Old Scripps Pier. The abalones were
1: now. This is the fall by are we the fall of 1939? That is correct.
0: The so, summer of 39. Summer of 39. The war is just about to break out. The in The war is just about to break out, and in fact, Vienna. Austria had been occupied by thirty-eight.
1: Yes, and Vienna I, had been occupied. Yeah. And I
0: felt very emotional about it. My, my stepfather was part of the Schuschnik government that fell under Hitler, and uh, he was head of the salt mines, which was a state monopoly in Austria. And my mother would which be... Which was
1: the, a big business. Uh, in,
0: yeah. An ancient, ancient industry that goes back a thousand years, right. used to be run by the bishops of Salzburg. And uh, I grew up oh, going on inspection trips to the salt mines in Austria. And so I was very shocked. So really after the... Well, I was back the next summer, 40, and asked Harold Sverup, the director, whether I could become his student, as it turned out, his only student, and he waited for the longest ten seconds in my life, because at the time the only jobs in oceanography were university jobs at Scripps, Boots Hole, and Seattle, yeah. and there were only a half a dozen such jobs. And he said, "I can't think of a single job that will open up in the next ten years." and i said quickly i'll take it became a student and then of course the war happened and a, a revolution in oceanography
1: now now this is you become a student in 19 1940 Yes. How many graduate students were there at Scripps Institute? I was the only
0: one for a few years. You were the only one? So you were really the first graduate student? Oh, no, no. Roger had graduated two years before. Oh. And our first PhD... Roger Ravel Roger he Who's
1: going to play an important yes. role in this story this morning.
0: And he had met him that summer. And he had graduated. And we had had some PhDs. Earlier, so Scripps had given, I think, about a half a dozen Ph.D.s between 1903 and 19, and the time when I came. Yeah. So I was not the only one. But so there were only so
1: f- you're. It, it's the warriors. at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. You're a student, but you're also very active in research related to the war and the like.
0: Well, that came a little later. I was back in 1940 saying I wanted to be a student. And then I decided that I wanted to join the U.S. Army and enlisted in the field artillery actually at Fort Lewis and joined the ski troops for a while at Mount Rainier before they moved into Colorado. Had a good time at the ski troops.
1: Now you could have almost been an instructor in that uh, army uh, as a skier, I assume.
0: I suppose so, but I was a lowly <laughs> private, private. <laughs> and, and, and did not. And uh, and I served for a year and a half in the army. And as you might remember, it was sort of a fake war. We did not go to, to war, and I would spend a year and a half learning how to salute and whom to. And then we started, a we being Roger, and Harold Sverdrup, the scripts director, right. started a University of California Division of War Research, UCDWR, at Point Loma.
1: This is a very important step for the university. Yes. Uh, and I don't think many people realize how significant that effort was during World War II, but go ahead.
0: It was under the over under the supervision of a man named Vern Nutzen, who later on became Chancellor at UCLA. Is that correct? Yes. yes. And uh, was an acoustician. And the work here in Point Loma was on anti-submarine warfare. And it was a very difficult time because the German subs were sinking Allied shipping at an alarming rate. Yeah. And we were not able to do any effective measures against it and I worked with them for a while and I thought it was a very effective time and then something dreadful happened from, from my point of view Harold Sverdup, who would drive in every morning with us to Point Loma when we got to the Navy base the guard said I'm sorry Dr. Sverdrup I can't let you in And we thought there was some kind of a uh, bureaucratic. Now, I should comment.
1: He was originally from Norway, came here to head up Scripps Institution of Oceanography.
0: He had been seven years in the Arctic, then became director of Scripps. When I came here, Scripps had 15 people, including the director and Gardner. As I mentioned, for a while I was the only student, it was very intimate. And anyhow, he felt very keenly about the war. His brother had been killed in a commando raid in Spitsbergen, a British commander raid. And uh, we were all puzzled. As it turned out, we didn't really learn what happened until about 30, 25 years later. And it happened that two members of the Scripps Institution, two professors... Had uh, accused, had reported him as not being a good citizen, and it, it it really broke his career.
1: No, it's really sad. And it
0: was very. And, and
1: he then leaves. And uh, when does he leaves SIO?
0: Two years later.
1: But you, he was very important in your career. You did your thesis with him.
0: He was very important. And very
1: him. important in the field of oceanography, really helping lay the base for the field.
0: And for revolution, I uh, let me say, when I came to Scripps, it was still really a biological field station with high dependence on making biological uh, collections at the end of our pier yeah. and no ships. And when Harold Svater left, we had really turned the corner towards being an oceanographic institute and we had two ships, the Horizon, and the... No, no, we had one sailing vessel, the E.W. Scripps, and had made that turn. And Svendup was very effective when he and Roger Ravel in turning Scripps around.
1: You're in the ski troops up in Washington. You're there as a private. Yes. Uh, apparently the Army doesn't even know that you have a degree from Caltech. That is correct. And then Roger Ravel
0: and, and I was and in the for director, a year and a half. Yeah. And then Roger, and there's a group of five people, Roger, up, Fleming, so on, got me out. And I, was, I had done my duty, and it, it was a bore because there was no war. But and it was so days I, before uh, December 7th. And, right, uh, one week. One week. And I drove down, joined them here. And then there was Pearl Harbor, and I would have never been discharged. A week
1: later, you would have been off uh, with the Army somewhere. In
0: Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And they had very heavy, my division had very heavy losses. They were among the first to be shipped overseas. And so then when Sverdow was discharged, because he was accused of not being a good citizen, uh Two months later, I was discharged because I was a student. And again, without any explanation, we had a group in Washington at the Pentagon under a man named Seywell, then a colonel, who had been a professor at Woods Hole. And he said, oh, well, you know, the Navy never knows what we're doing. I'm in the Air Forces. Why don't you come to work for me? So, I drove and took the job in the Pentagon, and that's where I learned about the forthcoming landings in Northwest Africa. So you weren't changed.
1: part of Scripps when you went there. you went as a uh, in the pentagon
0: uh, yes yes, and they permitted me to participate in a practice landing in South Carolina, where they had introduced the new kinds of shipping called l c v p landing craft, vehicle, and personnel that come ashore, drop their bow, people jump out. And uh, I learned that when the breakers exceeded five feet, that the landing craft would broach, turn parallel to shore, waves would break into it, people would get hurt. And they called it a day until the breakers would diminish. Yeah. And I went home and looked at the very little literature I could find about Northwest Africa in the winter and found that the typical wave height was bigger than six feet. I said, oh my God, what's going to happen?
1: I mean, Northwest Africa was where the Americans were going to make their first landing. And it
0: was the first Allied initiative. We had been retreating all over Europe against Axis initiative so it was enormously important that that should not be a a failure so I went to my commanding officer and said we better learn how to pick two good days or we're going to have a problem and he said oh they have thought all about this you do what you're told I was totally junior and So in my agony, I telephoned Sverdrup, and he took the next flight, even though he had lost his clearance too, but he was welcome in the Pentagon. And we spent a month trying to debate how we were going to do the prediction. It consisted of dividing the problem in three, C for the generation of waves in the storm area, swell for what happens to the waves when they go from the storm area to a distant landing beach and surf the most difficult part, what happens when you get waves, get ashore. And Swerop agreed that we should be able to do that. It had not been done. It's now utterly routine, of course. And he was a very well-known man internationally, and persuaded the powers that be that we should have classes, oh, and we worked on the on the on the landings in north west Africa, and all I can say is they came in on two good days, and that there was more luck than skill now let me just comment. I
1: understand that all of the landings allied force landings in europe and in africa and in the Pacific were all coordinated out of Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Yes. And that you were really key to the, the work that led to that coordination.
0: I was certainly involved. We set up a school at Scripps then, Harold Sverdeb and I, for meteorologic officers from both Air Force and Navy, and we would have about 10, 15 students for a month and then the next class, and the next class. And our experience was so typical of teaching, at the end of the first month, we had to rewrite all our texts because it changed our minds so much, and the next month again. So by the end of a year, we had graduated about 100 students, and there was very little resemblance of what we were teaching at the end of the year than at the it's beginning. good education. But those 100 people were in fact the ones who predicted all the amphibious landings in the Pacific Theater of War, and two of those students were in the British headquarters that were involved in the landing on D-Day. It's quite, and, uh, quite a story. Quite a, so is
1: this how you come back to Scripps with, at, at this point, leaving the Pentagon and coming back to Scripps to, to pursue this to, work? Correct. So you you return from the Pentagon to Scripps Institution. You're involved in the uh, landings in the various uh, Allied landings, and so then then what? Uh, and then
0: happens? after D-Day. After D-Day, I went back to become an ordinary oceanography graduate student, and I had a great time doing things. And but I wanted not to become a wave man, so I. Did some other things, and what after, does that mean not to become? No, a you know some people stay in a narrow speciality yeah. all their lives, and I wanted to do other things. I had been doing. Ocean and that's, waves.
1: that's earth sciences in the large, right? Yeah. right.
0: And so, uh, after five years, I had done nothing about my PhD because I had such a good time being involved in other problems, and Sverdrup said. That's and 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 uh, oh no, that was when Svend, before he went back to Norway, he said, if you don't do any work towards your PhD, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. So I threw together two papers I'd written that weren't really any good, got the shortest thesis in the history of scripts, passed my exam, got a degree. And a year later, it turned out that my thesis was flawed, very badly flawed, but apparently the University of California has no way of removing a degree <laughs> once granted. So I still have my doctor's degree. Yeah.
1: So you get your Ph.D., and uh, who is the director of uh, Scripps Institution by that point? It was
0: Carl Eckert, Carl Eckert. And I got my degree in '47. yes, and Harold Sertif had gone home.
1: But now you and Roger were very close during yes. the war years. Do you want to say a little about your cooperative efforts uh, during the war years? Roger went off to the Navy to be yes. the chief oceanographer of the uh, United States Navy, I
0: think. That is correct.
1: And you and he were very, very close colleagues.
0: Yeah, I said I've had three heroes. Charles Roger Revelle, and a British scientist, Sir Geoffrey Taylor. And those have made my career. And Roger was very close all my life, for my entire career. And so, yeah, Carl Eckert had become director because the faculty at Scripps had voted against Roger, and because he was poor and answering his phone call, answering his mail, being on time.
1: <laughs> and they... uh, not poor uh, not poor in finances, but not viewed as uh, the sort of day-to-day administrator that some people thought that is... was necessary. But he had a vision, and that's what was important. Describe a little the early days at Scripps, and after World War II, uh, you're, you've got your degree, Uh, Roger comes back as director uh, when... uh...
0: Roger came back determined to continue Harold Svedrup's move towards making scripts a seagoing oceanographic institution. Then something very odd happened. The Sardine Fishery, centered in Monterey, had taken a nosedive after, I think, about 10 years of prospering. The sardines had suddenly become very sparse. And it was decided that there should be a study made what happened. And we got two ships on that basis, the Horizon and the Baird. And Roger, who had been delayed as director because of his personal habits, did become director, following Carl Eckert. And we became a seagoing institution with two ships. And that changed our life totally at Scripps. And that was before the time, I think, when anybody was thinking of a campus. Yeah. And. So, but
1: by this time, With those two ships, there's quite a bit of federal uh, money coming to Scripps Institution.
0: And state money.
1: And state money, and it's beginning to really expand and push forward
0: yes, research. Oh, and of course, as you pointed out, the Navy became a principal, if you wish, supporter of U.S. oceanography because of the anti-submarine warfare and the amphibious landings. And so the field exploded, exploded by, by, by two orders of magnitude, really, but, as a result of the Navy. and But your colleague Roger Revelle, during the Warriors,
1: was uh, the chief oceanographer of the Navy. He plays a key role uh, after the war in setting up The National Science Foundation, but particularly ONR, ONR, yeah, and the Office of Naval Research was really the key to funding university research, and you and Roger were very much part of that uh, origin.
0: Absolutely, there was no NSF yet, yeah, Dick, and ONR in a way was the predecessor. Of NSF, It took a very broad view.
1: I, I was director of NSF, and uh, what was clear is that the original legislation that established NSF did not get enacted because there were certain problems. The president, President Truman, wanted to, to have the authority to appoint the director of NSF. The Congress had given the authority to the board of the National Science Board. So there was no agreement on moving NSF forward, and in that interim, until 1950, when NSF was established, uh, uh, ONR really takes on the duties of uh, supporting uh, uh, university research in the early days, before the concept of the government really supporting university research had had been
0: clearly established. And the first director of NSF came over from ONR, so there was a transition from ONR, and Roger played a central role In that entire early development?
1: Uh, I think that's a very important and uh, I I think that his role there uh, was really not just Scripps role but it was helping lay the foundation for a new approach to science in the United States namely that the federal government had a responsibility for funding basic research and the, the research should be done at uh, universities. And so it is the foundation of what we call a research university today, the modern American research university. That is correct. Talk about your role in those early years at Scripps with Roger.
0: He took a personal active role in some of our seagoing operations. In '46, we went to help with the Bikini atomic bomb test and Raja was very much involved and we all went there and helped. And that was a twenty kiloton explosion. I'm saying that because only five years later in 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 fifty two we had the test of an H bomb seventeen megatons, a thousand times bigger, and the Raja was And our two ships, the Scripps and the Baird, participated in a very interesting way in the H-bomb test. And Raja again was there and personally took charge of the seagoing operation. And we actually spent nine months at sea, I think it was nine months, going back from the Eniwetak test It was in the early days of plate tectonics, which was a revolution in geology. And I spent, under direct leadership of Roger at sea, uh, having a wonderful time taking nine months at sea to learn about the the, the plate tectonics. The evolution
1: of the earth sciences in those days was stunning. Yes. And uh, you, the two of you were very much part of it.
0: Very much so.
1: So the idea of Scripps Institution morphing into uh, more of a university, what, what what, how did all that come about?
0: I think that came after we got home from the H-bomb test. I came home and married Judy after the nine months at sea. And we started building our house, and I think that... The
1: house that we're sitting in this,
0: at this morning,
1: moment, and uh, we'll get to in a minute, but keep going.
0: And I do want to say one thing. Roger was director of scripts. He also became the person who was vitally involved in starting UCSD. And he had two purposes... And I think they were equal in his mind. One was that Scripps had not done a good job in changing from a biological field station to a general oceanographic geophysical institute. And he decided the only way that could be done successfully is to have a nearby university that teaches the basics of biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics. Woods Hole had a similar decision, but made an association with MIT right. at some distance. Yeah. So Raja had this double duty of thinking about starting a new campus here, plus wanting to improve the general intellectual level of the Scripps Institution. Yeah. And they were both in his mind in starting UCSD.
1: So the one of the early proposals is the Institute for Science and Technology that uh, Roger put forward to to the president of the university. I'm trying to recall the president's name. Sproul. 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 President Sproul. I want to comment a little about that. Sproul, was, uh, I think, had a very high regard for Roger Revelle. Sproul always thought of himself as being very much at the leading edge of bringing the University of California into the war effort. And even before the war started, he gave a speech saying that he was turning over uh, the facilities of the Cyclotron and Scripps Institution of Oceanography, not turning them over, but putting them at the disposal of the Uh United States government prior to our actually going to war. So I think Sproul always had a very special view of Scripps uh, because of Roger and your involvement at ONR and uh, the whole evolution of that perspective of the role of the university in the war. So, Roger, the, so you put forward the proposal for an institute for science and technology to President Sproul, and my sense of it is that Sproul welcomed the uh,
0: initiative. That is my sense also. I remember Sproul sitting at this fireplace... Ah, Raja, right. is, yeah. <laughs> and, and and talking about it. He had walked down the canyon, come back with Roger, and so there was a. Sproul early...
1: was a legendary president of the University of California. He became president in 1929, doesn't retire until about 1955 or 6, and one of his last acts at the last meeting of the regents, uh, or not, one of his last acts as the establishment of the uh, several institutes here. But, but so the Institute of Science and Technology is proposed. As I recall, it was to have three silos, uh, if that's the purport, the original scripts, but then two other areas that would sort of cover the full field of science and technology. Yes. Yeah. But it was to be a graduate institution yes.
0: with only a few undergraduates uh, moving about. At that time. Yeah. No, there was that it was Roger's proposal, partly because that would be a maximum help to Scripps, of course, but partly because he really believed in 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 that dream.
1: I, I gotta interrupt. He did. I remember there was a, a newspaper story that I saw where Roger, in putting this idea forward, indicated that no one at the other university should worry here. We'd never have a football team. It would be just a small number of undergraduates and principally yes. graduate students and research. But go ahead, sorry.
0: And uh, as I remember, there was a division of how UCLA felt and Berkeley felt. Berkeley was backing Roger's plan. Spall was backing it. UCLA thought we should start as a not only as an undergraduate school, but freshmen and sophomores only until we can show that we can teach and and there was a division of interest. And I remember somebody writing a letter to UCLA that Scripps had given PhD degrees when UCLA was still a teacher's college, which they started out with. So we won that battle, but it was a battle. And, uh, and, and Raja fought it very keenly, and we were all on his side.
1: You won some battles, but you lost some battles, too. I mean, in the sense that when Sproul steps down as president, about that time there's a report from the regents of the University of California that there have to be additional campuses of the University of California. And then the decision uh, is made to have a campus here in San Diego but there was not, they weren't so convinced that it should be part of Scripps' institution. I mean, wasn't one of the early proposals that there would be Scripps here and then down in the park, uh, another area set aside for...
0: Which Regent Pauly favored. Yes. He wanted us to be have a strong football team and at one Describe time... Describe
1: Regent Pauly for a minute.
0: He was in this room too, I said. He has been in this room too. And he, Roger. He started to be really quite good friends. And Roger, I remember at one time was his was Paulie's guest in Hawaii. Let me just say, Paulie was the chairman of the Regents, a
1: powerhouse in California. Any president of the United States that he wanted to appear in California, he would invite, and they would appear. He was a powerful figure, uh, and. He and Roger, he'd been in the oil business, so he was interested in geology. He and Roger got on very well initially, but then what happens?
0: And then they, I think they started to differ as to whether the campus should be here in La Jolla adjoining scripts or whether it should be in downtown Balboa Park. And that was, and, and there was... And I
1: think part of, there's been the rumor that what Paulie wanted was... If there was to be a campus here, it would be small and not compete with UCLA. And he was, he was sort of protecting the UCLA uh, view of uh, all of this.
0: And there was a very dramatic event, which I could describe because I was present, when a architect by the name of Ilakman e. and met, and I was present. And Luckman had been, by strange accident, consultant to the uh, Scripps Hospital. Let me just
1: interrupt here. Luckman was the architect who was principally responsible for designing the modern campus of UCLA. He was much admired by
0: Qualley, uh, And so Luckman... Uh, proceed. And Luckman had been consulted by Scripps Hospital about locating on the area east of us. And the Navy had a landing field at Miramar and occasionally would cause loud noises on their takeoff. And Luckman was asked whether the place was too noisy for the Scripps Hospital and had given a report saying that there was no problem whatsoever and they should be located just exactly as they had proposed. And for some reason, we had gotten a hold, we being, I don't know who, of that report. So then at this faithful meeting when Pauli was here at Luckman, and Luckman made the statement that the place that Roger and others had proposed here in La Jolla was too noisy and would cost incredibly more money to build classrooms and things. After Luckman had made his report, I forgot who it was, Kerr or Roger, made a statement that, quoting Luckman, that there was no problem at all as far as the Scripps hospital was concerned, which was, in fact, even closer to the Miramar landing field. And I remember Paulie turning to Luckman and said, did you write that? And Luckman said yes, very quietly. It was the end of the opposition.
1: Yes, but it was uh, it was still opposition, and Paulie did not like that defeat. There's no question no, about no. it. No, no, it was
0: a very traumatic yeah, moment.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, Luckman had been a consultant to the Scripps Hospital. He'd written a report that had sort of disappeared uh, along the way. Uh, uh, he's consulted by. Uh, Polly and oh no, it's not going to work because of noise and so forth. Quite, quite an amazing story. Yes. What about the flyover at uh, uh, that the Navy had uh, on an island that uh, uh, Polly owned? Uh, was,
0: oh, was Roger
1: there at that time?
0: I, I don't remember, Dick.
1: The story that I recall is that the Regents of the University of California had a meeting on Paulie's private island, which uh, oh. was one of the islands in Hawaii. And uh, at that island, he, uh, during the uh, cocktail hour, he had Navy jets swoop down on the site. And, uh, you know, it was horrifying. I mean, noisy and so forth. And that was all in preparation to say <laughs> that uh, there, should no, there should not be a campus of UCSD at... Uh, at uh, at the scripts.
0: that's
1: right. I, I use the term UCSD. Uh, that's a poor term to be using.
0: Yes, well, it started out as with various acronyms, something science and technology, and and the UCLJ for one year, not the longer. University of California, La Jolla. Oh yeah, and eventually UCSD. Yeah. And anyway, the important thing is that during that time. Uh, Raja was actively recruiting faculty he wanted a stellar faculty to start it with I think the symbol of that stellar faculty was the appointment of Harold Urey. and I'd like to mention why Raja was such a wonderful recruiter there was Her-
1: Harold Urey was a Nobel laureate yes. uh, and she very key run. to uh, the development of atomic energy and the like uh, and studying
0: what? the moon. Yes. In addition to, and had very Catholic tastes. And Raja would, when people came whom he wanted to get, we, and the original faculty actually lived down at Scripps. That's where Harold Dewey was and and, and, and some other people. And Raja would devote himself completely to these new possible appointments. And the reason he was so successful is that he really became familiar with their dreams, sometimes perhaps more realistically than they were themselves, and and started dreaming what they wanted to do. And that was why he was successful. But he would walk them through the place that where the campus was to be and he said, Here's going to be a library, here would be that, here will be that and then Mysteriously, at cocktail hour, he would appear at our house, right in this room, and we would have our martinis ready. And uh, he said, Here is a typical faculty house. <laughs> and we were very happy to play the game in helping Roger. So that was an incredible time of getting some very good people to decide to come here. And they made the beginning. And I think
1: uh, that was absolutely key to the development of UCSD, the recruitment of so many stellar people in the very beginning. And that was a style that Roger really pursued with vigor.
0: And he just gave himself completely. And the reason that he was late answering phone calls and answering mail and others is that whatever he was doing at the moment, His complete attention, and there are advantages and disadvantages, and everybody has to decide for themselves.
1: (laughs) I I gather that uh, he probably wasn't following all the rules of the university either, that he was pretty good at uh, getting federal funds and mixing funds to recruit people uh, to the campus, where there wasn't always a clear... Uh, state base for things. I mean, I think he was quite inventive in those days, and the inventiveness led to the recruitment of truly spectacular people, and uh, quickly this became known as an unusual uh, institution. Uh, but so what happens? Uh, the university decides to form a general campus. Uh, they finally come to the decision to form the campus here. Uh Roger has been key to all of that. Uh, this house plays a role here in several of the regents' meetings, and we'll get back to that. But uh, so we're at the point where Roger, where there's a core faculty in place, that we're beginning to build up on the main campus, and the regents are about to appoint the first chancellor of UC San Diego. By this point, it's now called. UC San Diego, I believe the last meeting Sproul was at, he actually indicated that he thought UC La Jolla was not the right title, that it should be UC San Diego and Sproul, that was his last act virtually as president of the university. So uh, we have a new president, it's uh, Clark Kerr, Uh, Clark Kerr has the responsibility of naming or proposing a name for the first chancellor of UC San Diego.
0: What happens? And then came as a complete surprise. We were all very much involved just taking for granted that Roger would be the first chancellor. I think Roger took it for granted as well. And I was chairman of the small faculty then when the news came out that Herb York would visit and would be our first chancellor. And I remember being everybody being very upset. We didn't really know her well. And we had a meeting in this very room where the, whatever faculty was here wasn't much. We said, well, we will, Ensenada was starting a new oceanographic school. We can all fit about the horizon and the bed. We'll all go down to Ensenada and help them start. And Roger was here and said, stop that nonsense. Uh, And uh, as it turned out, Herb York and Roger became very good friends. Herb was a wonderful chancellor, and uh, they eventually ended up working together. But we had some very difficult time at the time, and the faculty really was very upset about this.
1: But he's only chancellor for two years he has a medical condition that convinces him that he should step down as chancellor. Right. He steps down and again the thought was that Roger would be appointed as chancellor. And again it doesn't happen. Polly really they'd cross swords and Roger I think is a kind of person who would cross swords with Polly. Not many people would have stood up to Polly, but I think they did cross swords early and um, Pauli was still out to say no to uh, Roger Ravel's appointment so when Roger when that happens Roger at that point uh, the new chancellor comes in it's uh, Galbraith and uh, Roger then
0: goes off to Harvard and he goes off to Harvard Roger had become very interested in food and population problems he'd been to India a number of times and studied it at, at first hand. And so when Harvard offered him the new directorship of the Institute for Population Study, he accepts. And he was there for a total of, I think, about 15 years. He returns here in 1980. 1980. Yeah, I know
1: that because that's the year I arrived. <laughs> or he may have arrived in 1979, I'm not quite sure. But he arrives basically the year I arrive as the third chancellor. Right. As a fifth chancellor, what am I saying?
0: Fifth chancellor. And Ellen was very happy in Harvard. She told me that that was the happiest years of her life. She actually liked the Harvard existence. And then Roger came back and volunteered to teach an undergraduate course in food and population, which became very popular here, I think. And he did that a number of times up on the upper campus and Ed Freeman then said if you would you come and join me in a little office next to mine and that sort of completed the circular route that Raja had taken via interior Harvard back to UCSD, back to Scripps. And it's a it's a wonderful story. It
1: is a wonderful story. And uh, this institution, I'm not sure what it would be like without you and Roger, but I think key to it was the clarity of excellence to recruit faculty that were outstanding. But you had the plan of recruiting from the top down. Say a little about that.
0: Well, that was very much, he thought he would, Roger thought he would have to make some key appointments I mentioned Yuri as a symbol, but there were others: Joe Mayer, Maria Mayer, who became a Nobel laureate. And uh... Uh,
1: the, the, Maria Mayer, uh, recruited from uh, University of Chicago, her husband is a distinguished uh, physical chemist. I think she's a <laughs> physicist. She does not get an appointment at uh, Chicago because she's a woman. Uh, she's just a research assistant. Roger offers both of them faculty positions here, and shortly after she arrives, she wins the Nobel Prize in physics. Not a bad recruitment, I'd say.
0: That's right.
1: You know, I think it's interesting. When you compare the other new campuses of the University of California at that time, they recruited from the bottom up. uh, You know, we've got to have this, we've got to have this, we'll have an assistant professor here. The idea was... We're not going to worry about which fields we recruit from. We're going to just get really top-notch people, people who can... Uh... Yeah. Now, there's a wonderful story that I'm going to tell, and maybe it'll remind you of some others. Uh, Kerr liked to say that uh, at one of the, uh, the early visits to the campus, when the decision was made, when, when there was a small faculty, probably before uh, Herb York was appointed as uh, ch- a chancellor, And uh, Kerr came down and he said, you know, you're going to be a full campus of the University of California and it's a great opportunity for the faculty here. And I guarantee you that you'll have the kind of support that Berkeley has and you can become a great university like Berkeley. And one of the faculty members said, "We're not willing to stoop to that level." <laughs> there, there was an attitude uh, at uh, this place about being very good.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Roger was willing to make decisions and uh, take chances. I, I mean, in my own personal case, I was thinking at one time of leaving for Harvard. I was had changed my interest to solid earth science and they offered me the chairmanship of the department there. And I was about to leave and start an institute of, of Was he already at Harvard, Roger? No, Roger was still here because he then said, Mike, don't you do that at Scripps, we can we can do that here just as well as at, at Harvard, and persuaded me to start IGPP here. No, that's before he left. Yeah. And I know if he had gone to the then faculty of Scripps and said, can Monk start an institute of geophysics, the majority would have voted against it. And he just said, you go ahead and I'll give you uh, 3.2 FTEs or whatever it was. And, and without, I think, consulting with Everybody. Yeah. And nowadays I'm afraid if something like that is being decided there are lengthy discussions within the faculty. It has its advantages and it's worse than that,
1: not only discussions within the faculty, then it would have to go to system wide committees that would have to review it again and uh, be tough to do. Right. Well, say a little about this house. Uh, I mean, this whole area. Tell us what this area is, why there's this house here, and so forth. Well, some of the And I might say, I gather I'm now sitting on University of California property.
0: Yes. We built this house ourselves. Judy was an architect, and I'm an oceanographer, which is a fancy word for being a plumber. So I did the plumbing of this house with many, many leaks, I might say. And we, 19 of us at Scripps, had decided that the area was becoming attractive and would be too expensive for Scripps faculty to afford unless we did something soon. And we hunted around and found 42 acres next door to Scripps that belonged to a Mr. Poole. And in fact, Roger and and Helen Raid and I went to Mr. Poole and said, could we buy that land? He And we shook hands for 40, 42 acres for $42,000. What year was that, do you think? 1949
1: sounds 42, right. $42,000 in
0: 1949. A $1,000 an acre was considered a sort of a good starting point for land around here. And there were no other houses. It was totally empty. And uh, a day after, was the La Jolla Shores Road in by then? Uh, there was nothing between us and La Jolla except the Beach Club, and so on. And it was and the Scripps community, all essentially, all lived on the Scripps uh, three hundred acres that E.W. Scripps had given yep. us. And so we bought the, we shook hands with Poole and uh, it's a wonderful piece of land just north of Scripps, including a canyon going down to the beach. And a day later, Mr. Black, who had built a big horse farm just north of us where my children are riding, went to Mr. Poole and said, why don't you let me buy it and I'll pay you more? And Poo, to his everlasting honor, said, I shook hands yesterday. I can't do that. Pretty good. Yes. And we, we, then we subdivided the land, and we had a faithful meeting at Roger's house where everybody drew a lot. We had p- set price tags on the lots, and they were very different. The one here was about $5,000. So how
1: many lots did
0: you have? Uh, Forty-two. Forty-two lots. And, but we had only 19 people originally, and this lot and we drew lot numbers, not that we would get a more valuable lot, but the order in which we could make our choice.: Yes. And this was 19 out of 19. And we all got fantastic lots. And this was the 19th lot chosen, the last one. It's a spectacular lot. I
1: mean, I I, I can't imagine 18 better lots. Well, the
0: more dramatic ones. Yeah, are, yeah, uh, forward. And so, we had an exciting time. We did our own subdivision, and uh, eventually, we were the only house here for a long time. Some were further forward. But Roger never moved up here.
1: Never thought of. He was living down in La Jolla and never made that move.
0: Yeah, I want to say something about that. Harold Sverdum lived on the campus when I came, and Judy felt very strongly, my wife Judy, that the Scripps director ought to live above the store, as she said. And I should say that with that in mind, Mary and I decided to give our house and land to the Scripps Institution with a fervent hope then it would become the director's house. It's ideally located, being close to both UCSD chancellor and house. And we had the ceremony, and the only question is to what extent we would have to have funds to bring it up to code. Yeah. And since I did the plumbing, there's ah, some ah, work ah, to ah, be done. Yeah, yeah. And so, but we have expressed it. And the chancellor and the director of Scripps and the region were present, and we've written that up. And so this house now belongs to the regions. We can live here as long as I live, plus two years for Mary, after I die. And then we hope it will serve the function of the Scripps Institution and that they will follow our wishes.
1: Well, it's played a historic part in the evolution of UC San Diego. I mean, the idea of faculty collected here is important. Uh, The recruitment of the early faculty certainly was influenced by visits to this house, the experience of living in this area.
0: And the first two Bell College graduations were, we have a little theory now a lot, the first two graduations took place in our lot. The first theater department used our little theater to put up performances. It was a man named Christmas, Eric Christmas, who was our first drama department right. director. And we're having all the new prospective script students here day after tomorrow. We had that a year ago. We were very successful in persuading them, many of them to come to Scripps, and so we played a significant part. And there was a regent's meeting here, a famous one. Tell us about that regent's meeting. That was during the Vietnam problem, when there was a lot of uh, discontent, as you remember. I was chair of the faculty the second time, and... Uh, uh, then let me just
1: comment. Walter is chairman of the faculty and who are the members of the faculty at that point? I mean, uh, quite a famous philosopher.
0: Oh, Marcuse. Marcuse. A German-born philosopher came here he, and the regions were not aware of his appointment for a while and when they did become they were extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> My own Attitude was that he was a bore. He combined German solemnness with his political ideas, which I thought were really not very inspiring.
1: But uh, in terms of the anti-war movement, he was known everywhere in the world. Except, he, <laughs> and uh, you know, was uh, was sort of viewed as the intellectual
0: anti, the intellectual yeah. factor behind the Vietnam War. But go ahead, well, re- and he. I was chair and I remember having the faculty here vote that his appointment should be renewed and I was sent to the regents meeting to argue in his favor which I did. Was the regents meeting here? No up north, up, up, yeah. which I did unhappily but successfully and <laughs> came back and and uh, we had a meeting and and we learned that the students were going to interrupt the meeting, a Regents meeting, and so it was decided to secretly have it here at our house. And the students heard about it and broke in, and tried to interrupt it, and it became almost violent, with Mrs. William Randolph Hearst being here and some students. And we had a very Interesting time with Marcuse
1: and... Is this when McGill is chancellor of the university? Yes. And I, you had all of the regents here in the house? That's yes. a pretty big body of people.
0: Yeah. We had a meeting here. I should reconstruct that. I do not remember how many people... It might have been a subcommittee of the regents. It might have yeah. been a subcommittee. Yeah. And uh, so during the Vietnam and saying Angela Davis, who was a student of Herbert Marcuse, was here, and the students had planned a strike against teaching, and I opposed that and tried to persuade Angela Davis to uh, to 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 help me, and she agreed. She was here for dinner. And next day, when I went down to the campus there, she was saying, strike, strike, strike. And I said, Angela, you promised me last night you would help us not to have a strike. And she said, oh, you're one of these old-fashioned people who believes that promises have to be held. (laughs) (laughs) So you were chairman
1: of the uh, faculty during the worst of the Vietnam period. uh Yes. Yes. I mean, we had a student who burned himself to death at that time. Yes. Uh, This was a pretty active uh, period uh, in terms of student
0: protests. Eldritch Cleaver. Do you remember the name?
1: Yeah, of course, I remember. And he came for,
0: and the students could invite a speaker to an annual student meeting, and they invited Eldritch Cleaver. And he spent his, and he came for dinner before he gave his talk. Here? Right here. <laughs> what? The, the, the number of people who flowed through this house. Oh, yes. <laughs> and he had placed some of his goons on the upper end of our steps to keep anybody from interrupting us. And uh, then Eldridge Lieber gave a talk which consisted mostly of attacking Governor Reagan with famous le- four-letter words and was very boring and then came back here afterwards. And, and I remember that I had an account with a company called Payne Weber, and the head of Payne Weber in La Jolla came down to protest what I was doing in having Eldridge Cleaver for dinner. It was terrible. And the goons wouldn't let him come down the <laughs> steps and he never forgave me. Yeah. <laughs> so we had we did play a part in the history of this wonderful campus. Yeah. And Judy and I both felt we wanted to be involved.
1: Well, you were, had a great scientific career, but you had a key role in shaping the quality of this university. There's no question. So, as you're building the university and recruiting these first-rank faculty, Jonas Salk comes out to the area, and I think Roger invites him out initially, Uh, but just tell us the the Jonas Salk story and how it relates to the origins of the university and so forth.
0: What I remember is that Roger, in his usual way, gave his full time to help Jonas, establish his institute. And he had, Roger had by that time pretty well persuaded people to establish a campus here. And I remember he telling Jonas, find yourself some good piece of land, I will help you. But please don't compete with us for university land.
1: Now, now, let's just hold for a minute. Jonas Salk is a professor at uh, at uh, Pittsburgh, he has the fame of the Salk vaccine. Uh, the March of Dimes provides funds to let him establish an institute. He comes out to La Jolla. Is welcomed by Roger as uh, this would be a great place for the Salk Institute. And then what happens?
0: And then uh, uh, suddenly, fans we learned that. Raja learns that he had asked for a piece of land I don't quite know how large which was part of what was trying to be acquired for UCSD and I remember Raja being quite upset about this and Jonas saying well you know my people had been looking around and I didn't know they were doing that it was a bit on the shady side I thought Years later, Raja had written an oral history about his own life. If you write an oral history for the University of California, you are asked, can it be made available now or in 20 years or in 50 years? You have a choice. Yeah. And Roger said, oh, I don't care. You can have it at any time. Yeah. So he had no restrictions. And then when Roger died, nobody paid any attention. And when Raja died, one of the newspaper reporters decided this was a good time to read what Raja had written. Yeah. And he found a discussion about Jonas Salk, and it went like this, uh, Professor Revel, what do you think of Jonas Salk? Revel, oh, I like him fine, but he's not very bright. <laughs> so that was published in the newspaper next day, they asked Jonas what he thought about that he said Dr. Revell is entitled to his own (laughs) and I might add since we spoke earlier about SCA or land here Jonas had one of the lots
1: yeah he built a home here yes he built
0: and his son still owns it
1: so he was part of this community and uh, the the uh, Salk Institute's been a great colleague or great great companion to the university, and yes. we've prospered very much uh, from it. But the, the, where it's located isn't a beautiful site, yes. and I can see why. Uh, <laughs> but I gather that at the time, the mayor had his one of his children had a polio, and he was very the mayor of San Diego was very excited about getting Jonas out here, and. Yes. Uh, it, it worked out reasonably well.
0: Yeah. And, of course, they built themselves but, a...
1: Yeah, but tell us a little now, there's scripts You acquire this land, but uh, those there are Scripps, military yeah. bases here uh, during the war. What, what, the university then begins to acquire quite a bit of land. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and I think now we claim something like 2,000 acres of land and much of it uh, came from military bases that were acquired by the people at Scripps in the years after the war.
0: Well, it was acquired for UCSD, not by the people, not for the Scripps Institution. Yes. And there was a shooting range, Camp Elliott, Camp Callan, and, and of course, Miramar, the Navy base. And so...
1: Oh, even when I was chancellor, I sat in a, a little building where veterans would walk by because they had had their training uh, there and they were looking at these old sites. And, you know, we still had a lot of military buildings uh, on the campus in the 1980s. And some of the veterans from that period would drift through, you know, wanting to where, where did I do this? Where did I do that? And so forth.
0: Well, isn't it the same building yes, where you yeah. were chancellor yeah, yeah. and where the present chancellor sits? Yeah. One of
1: that's one of the good, good signs of uh, UCSD. We didn't get into fancy offices for the chancellor. The focus was on research buildings, and yes. I mean, being a great university, but being a great research university. Yes. So, in the land acquisition, can you recall some aspects of that? I mean.
0: Uh, well, maybe the most important thing of all was that Freeway Five, which would have ordinarily gone right through the middle of the campus, was moved eastward, so that to avoid cutting the campus in two, and the old 101 that we all used to go from here to Los Angeles, it was a three-way highway, which made it very difficult to pass a three-lane highway in my times yeah. uh was left as going as becoming the principal access into the campus. And uh, I thought they've done a very nice job.
1: For the state to have moved the highway over east in that way is, was pretty impressive that they were willing to do it and so Yes. I remember coming down here And it was just opened in a way, and that was quite an opening to San Diego. Uh, Yes.
0: The old 101 had great romantic attachments for most of us. Yeah. And going up north on old 101, and I still occasionally like to do that.
1: I don't think many young people today even have any concept of what a three-lane highway was. <laughs> I mean, one lane going one direction, the other going the other, in the middle where you winded the Black <laughs> yeah.
0: No man's land. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
1: So in the early recruitment of faculty, uh, were there any complications that uh, we should uh, mention at this point?
0: Well, there was among real estate people here in La Jolla a general anti-Jewish understanding and Roger decided very early in the game that no way could he build a great campus if something of that prevailed and he was head of the La Jolla Town Council once and, and he took a very active interest and as it turned out I think he made friends with a Black real estate men here, who decided to break that con, that what what do you call it that that agreement, and that was the beginning of the end. And of course, SEA had no our group here. That that situation never even came up.
1: Yeah, but it was an issue uh, but in he, the very early recruitment. Uh, and I think I mean I remember Roger saying at one time you know, we can't build a great university if we can't recruit uh, Jewish faculty. And uh, this has to be a place that's uh, going to be really receptive to... uh, Yes.
0: And he definitely succeeded. And, of course, he was married to a very prominent member of the Scripps family. And the Scripps family was very powerful here in La Jolla. And I had the good fortune of marrying Judith, who was came from an old San Diego family, four generations, and so saw something of both sides together with El and it and I guess the thing just went away. Yeah. And among one of the many things that Roger Revelle did.
1: You know, I took introductory chemistry from Harold Urey at the University of Chicago. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Was he a good teacher?
1: Uh he was a great man i remember going into this you know this is in the 40s i remember going in to see him about a problem that i couldn't solve and uh it was in the book in the problem that had been assigned and he couldn't solve it either (laughs) so what he did though is he then started to talk about his carbon dating research (laughs) so about 1940 seven or 48 I, he was telling me about his early research on carbon dating and it was quite an experience to uh and my my wife had lived uh, she was raised uh, in leonia new jersey and uh they had uh, they had with their nobel prize money they had built a house just a few doors from uh my wife's house. Ah. So my wife was raised with the Yuri children. So when we came here, we of course, she of course knew Harold Yuri very well, and his wife and the children. She does. Yeah. 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 Yes. What about this story that uh, when Marie uh, got the Nobel Prize uh, uh, in physics, that she uh, that the newspaper had a, a headline Uh, uh, a La Jolla housewife wins Nobel Prize. La Jolla housewife Housewife. (laughs) (laughs) wins Nobel Prize. Now, as I recall, when Roger came back to the university after his years at Harvard, he participated in quite a few of the Revelle graduations. Yes, And he would shake hands with all the... uh, uh, male
0: graduates, and he would kiss the uh, female uh, graduates. Yes, I, don't I know. remember that too. <laughs> and uh, and I really think I enjoyed most being on a ship with him for the better part of a year. To be uh, to like someone as a shipmate is a very special thing. Is very <laughs> special is a very special thing, and we came back after being nine months at sea and were afraid of how we would do going back to land. You know, our home had become the ship, and the idea of how are we going to deal with these strange people who are living on land became a little bit of a concern. And I remember everybody in our ship saying to the cook, saying, well, I don't have to eat your chow again, thank God, but the day we landed in San Diego, and I don't have to put up with you again and then the evening came, about half the people came back aboard the ship to have dinner there because they felt kind of left out and strange. Uh, when I uh, got
1: here in 1980, people would describe the, the Scripps Navy as uh, the seventh largest navy in the world. I mean, that, uh, of all the nations in the world, the Scripps had the seventh. <laughs> we had quite a few ships at the time. Yes,
0: yeah. yes. When and, of course, did,
1: those weren't owned by Scripps, but Scripps became, yes. respond, like running this, uh, an astronomy facility for astronomers, it was running a ship facility for oceanographic research and the like.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, of course, we have a ship named the Roger Revelle. Yes. To, and we have a ship called the Melville, which is going to be retired in a year. So we're losing a major ship. We still have the Sproul you mentioned I the think, name for the President.
1: Yeah, the uh, the sprawl ship, I remember the dedication of that, and I think uh, that was dedicated about 1985, I think, or something, something like that. It's interesting that
0: there was a ship named Sproul. She's terribly uncomfortable, Dick. I've been aboard her, and there are four bunks all yeah. above each other, essentially, but she's a wonderful ship.
1: But See, I, I go back to the same point that I uh, think that Roger, and, Roger as a younger man and Sproul is a much older man had a very good relationship and that Sproul really saw himself at the forefront of research supporting the war effort and Roger being here and then as the head of ONR or as the head of naval oceanography, and then involved in establishing ONR and NSF, that they they had a good relationship and they had a view about the future of research universities, and that Roger prospered in the sense from the support that Sproul gave him, and that once Sproul stepped down as president, uh, it became a tougher time for him.
0: I think that's absolutely right wonderful relation between an older and a younger man. And, of course, Harold Sverdrup had decided that Roger was the man to succeed him because he shared his seagoing experience and love. Yeah. And he also had guts to do things. And then our biologists were afraid, rightly so, because they were going to lose their... Yeah the thing and, and, and voted against him and Carl Eckert who had become convinced that Roger should be director sort of took it over as a holding operation yeah. and made Roger uh, vice director for Marine Affairs and then two years later yeah. Roger just yeah. automatically stepped yeah. into the thing
1: well when the faculty get involved there can be lots of <laughs> complexity Yes. Uh, so your role as uh, chairman of the faculty during the Vietnam period, any other
0: thoughts about that? Well, I was glad I became chair at a time when people wanted to come to the meeting. And, and and, too uh, many people wanted to too come. Too many did. And the students broke in one time and we had to ask them to leave. It was an exciting time. And I'm very pleased that I... Served during that time. It was exciting and I survived. And the funny way, I think the reason I survived is at that time, any association with government, especially military governments, was very unpopular among the students. And for example, a man, Keith Brooker, was it Keith Brooker or one of the other people, tried not to let it be known that he was receiving military money. I did the lucky or wise thing, you take your choice, of announcing when I got elected that I was being supported by O&R and that I was proud of the support of my Navy association. And I never suffered under it because it had been announced.
1: You know, the chancellor during that period was uh, William McGill. Yes, yes. And he wrote a book called The uh, Year of the Monkey, describing yes. the difficulties. And in that book, you're, you play a rather significant role as a counselor to him, dealing with some of the complexities of the student uh, revolt and so And then forth. he
0: went to Columbia.
1: Yes. But he came back here at the same time Roger came back. I did. So know. He, retur- he finished as, pres- as president of Columbia. And returns to Loya and the UCSD campus. Roger comes back either either nineteen seventy nine or eighty, and so uh, they're both here at that uh, point.
0: And I don't know whether they were close. Uh, no, they did friends. not. I they did not
1: overlap. I mean, McGill was chancellor while Roger was already, uh, but obviously they knew each other well. And,
0: and when uh, many years later, when Roger had to returned to Scripps. A man named Fred Singer, who's a physicist, who was violently anti-anti lots of things, uh, went to tackle Roger to join him as a co-author in a paper that eventually said that climate change did not happen. And Fred
1: Singer, a professor uh, at Virginia, a very hostile opponent to the, the theory of climate change. And
0: so he meets with Roger and-, and... Roger at that time was not well. And he persuades Roger to join him. It was once late in the day and Roger was tired. It was soon a month before his death, I think. And uh, and unfortunately, I uh, persuaded Roger to sign. And then Singer said, "Well, Roger Rebell doesn't believe in that anymore." They they co-authored a
1: paper. I mean, he signed on as a co-author. I've never read that paper. I'll have to read it someday.
0: And then Ed Freeman and I wrote a paper saying let let Roger speak for himself, because Roger had spoken out very clearly on that, and you could quote his work and I years later went to a celebration of Roger at Harvard where they had a a commemoration of his and Fred Singer was there and I told a story coming with Roger to Samoa, to American Samoa which then was under a US governor who was some kind of a Navy man. And I remember him saying, the governor saying to us, we were on board a ship, this was the yeah. Capricorn, saying, Do you want us to take you out to a native village and have a dinner there, a feast there? And we said, Of course, yes, we'd love that. And we got there, and the Navy governor, gave a speech about what we were doing on the expedition, but he didn't know what we were doing in the expedition. Oh, there was the high chief and the talking chief. And by ancient tradition, the talking chief does all the talking, and the high chief sits quietly. Well, Raja was the high chief, and the governor acted as the talking chief, but didn't know what he was talking about. And as you can imagine, Raja got increasingly nervous as he heard things about the expedition which he didn't think were correct and then he finally broke in which you should never do and said that's not what we do at (laughs) all here's what we (laughs) do (laughs) and corrected him and of course lost all all prestige of standing in the South Pacific because he had no business to to talk and I told that story in front of Singer and I said, I have a reason for telling the story. Roger didn't need someone else telling him what he thought. He needed he to talk for himself. He didn't need Fred Singer. And Fred was sitting in the back room, jumped up, and said, I've been insulted. Oh, oh <laughs> <my>. <laughs>
1: so, Oh, Roger, you know, <laughs> Roger was president of the AAAS, the American Association for the Dancers of Science. And I think the president who preceded him was um, Margaret Mead. Yes. I'll never forget the two of them together. Here's this tall, elegant uh, Roger Revelle, and she's on a cane, but she's elegant too. And they had quite a little uh, time together, enjoying each other very much. But he was uh, he was really part of the, uh, I'm going to say it, the establishment of science in the years after yes. World War II. Yes. I mean, he was one of the... People who really, in his way, played a key role in what's become American science policy. Yes. And uh, I go back again to the fact that uh, I think he shaped the early days of ONR. And the, the early days of ONR shaped NSF and the whole concept of the federal government's requirement or responsibility to fund research basic research that you could not count on the private sector to do the basic research. That was a federal responsibility. And uh, it was very important that it not be done in government laboratories, but that it be funded uh, through uh, university research. Yes. So once again, I say, Roger and you uh, were very important to the well-being of this country, not just in terms of the development of UCSD, but also in terms of the development of science policy.
0: And you see it happened at a time when the uh, mutually assured destruction, Cold War with the Russians was coming on and we had some very wonderful relations with some Navy admirals who were at the time building the SSBN uh, which was the earmark of U.S. Security, yeah. And it's interesting to mention that because we're getting back into an era where this might repeat itself. And I remember distinctly that uh, whoever was a four-star at the time and responsible for building the submarine arm, coming out and giving Scripps a reasonable amount of money without any... Uh, pay uh, free and said well we're about to operate in a new environment going to sea for three months without coming to the surface yeah. that's a new type of environment for Navy people we need to support people who study that environment and who will help us using it intelligently and that's still a sort of a major problem from which we have gone a little further away now I think To our detriment, I think it was wonderful to have that time when we really worked together as, as close partners.
1: I want to go back to that, but Jason, mention a little about Jason. Explain what Jason is.
0: Well, at the end of World War II, with very good cooperation between the university community and the military, and by the way, one that, for example, the German Navy did not have, they never had a relation with German oceanographers or German seagoing people, and in a way to the detriment eventually of the German war effort. It was felt very strongly by some very senior American scientists that that should be maintained. And one of the things that happened was they formed a group called Jason, Doesn't the name doesn't mean anything, Very distinguished group of people like Charlie Towns. They originally used to meet in different places at different times of the year. The higher, but always in La Jolla. No, oh really? Not until thirty years later. Oh really? La Jolla became our base when we the GA gave us a building here on the campus on the on their campus. Yeah. The GA. Anyhow, I joined uh, quite. I joined about a year later, and, uh, and I've been a member ever since. And it's been a wonderful experience. We have had some very close relations, have made some major decisions, and I hope that it will continue.
1: Well, you know, when I uh, first joined the faculty at Stanford, this is 1956, there was still a lot of classified research going on at Stanford, and literally different areas of the campus, some areas were fenced off. And this was true throughout the country. Uh, There was quite a bit of research being funded that was classified. When the Vietnam War hit its peak, uh, the view was universities should do research, but they should not be doing classified research. And I think that still serves the nation well, but we do need to have institutions like Jason where the, uh, uh, where the government uh, can call upon scientists for uh, their I- input on, on weapon systems and a dozen other uh,
0: issues. And Scripps has been very careful in not having classified work in La Jolla, but we have a facility at Point Loma called MPL, Marine Physical Lab, which does have classified facilities. And we try very hard to keep it separate. It doesn't do any good to have foreign graduate students and then have to keep things so. So we think it's a very bad idea for universities, on their main campus at least, to do classified work.
1: The uh, I, I want to just once again reiterate the UC uh, Office of whatever war researcher that was out on Point Loma during the war we we employed about five thousand people there it was a major research facility Uh, uh, you know it it really was not comparable to uh, Los Alamos or the like but it was one of the key research facilities in that field and it was mainly staffed by or led by uh, Our people.
0: I don't remember how many. I didn't know it was quite that big.
1: That's the number I give it.
0: I mean, there were some Navy people, and it was a mix. And I really very much believe that that combination of university-military collaboration is a very important part of the strength of the American system. And I hope we can keep it going we now have a group of Navy chairs who meets with the Chief of Naval Research twice a year. How many
1: Navy th- chairs are there? Five.
0: Five. I'm the only one that's been in for a long time. We have uh, Three out of the five are here, uh, namely John Orcutt and Bill, Bill Cooperman and I. That's great. But I have had the continuous chair since 19, since I was 65. And it's been wonderful to work with the Navy. But I said that our really wonderful days was early ONR when... And I think the problem may come up again in connection with the climate problem. The climate problem sort of reminds me a little of World War Two. We have to do almost the impossible to succeed. Yeah. And just in 50 years to be... Independent of fossil fuel is a almost impossible problem, but I've heard it studied by people with facts at their disposal, and it, it it seems like on a warlike basis it could be done. We need to have more energy to get our required needs of water and food, and we will have to build some on atomic nuclear nuclear power plants to have enough energy. We can't do it with sun and wind alone. And Scripps should take a very major role in that. And lots of people at Scripps are very much involved. And we have forgotten in our discussion something very important. Oh, uh, I think uh, I know. It is one of the key people in having been ahead of time in realizing the climate problem. When I came to Scripps, the point of view was as follows. There is a major change in orbital constants of the Earth-Moon-Sun system yes. with a period of 40,000 years. And it's the obliquity of the ecliptic, the angle of the Sun with regard to the angle of the equator. It's 23.5 degrees on the average. If the Sun were at the equator we'd have no winter, no summer. And that 23 and a half marries between 23 and 24 in 40,000 years. And when it is 24, you get more sun at high latitudes and you melt the ice. And when it's at the other extreme, you get ice ages. And there was an ice age 20,000 years ago. And there's going to be another ice age in 20... In another twenty thousand forty thousand from the last one, and we the point of view a little bit as a joke was weren 't we clever to release CO2 into the atmosphere, to have an engineering solution to the, that avoids another ice age in twenty thousand years? Well, it seems like we overshot a little bit, and now we have a problem and Raja hired Keeling, the older Keeling to uh, do some observations of CO2, who then set up an observatory in Hawaii, on the island of Hawaii. And the Keeling curve, which was 50 years of showing CO2, showing the seasonal variation and the general trend, had become the very basis, the one thing that nobody has questioned, if you notice, nobody ever questioned, and became the first really important warning sign. And I think that's going to be a major factor in civilization in the next hundred years. No question. And Raja, again, had his fingers in it. And yes, I did have the pleasure of working with him on yeah. a number of things, but it was his idea. He hired Dave Keeling, and he showed, Amazing foresight of what's important.
1: I think that's a very interesting remark. I mean, the Keeling curve is so clear and so wonderful, and that Roger was anticipating some of these issues. But, uh, you know, global warming is an issue, cybersecurity is also an issue, and uh, if uh, the uh, National Security Agency is going to be effective. They're going to have to build much stronger relationships with university faculty to uh, uh, understand uh, and deal with some of the problems that they're facing. Yes. So there are two areas, uh, global warming and cybersecurity, where it's going to be very important to build bridges between the government and uh, the universities.
0: And I hope so. The relations, I mean, I remember the early days of the war with some degree of fondness because everybody worked together. It was a different spirit. We just had to win this situation. And um, Mary and I went to a meeting last year in the Vatican attended by some very substantial people sponsored by the Pontifical Academy of Sciences and the Pacific Academy of Social Sciences. And we were there five days. They worked from morning till night. But, I mean, there were such people as members as the former head of the Royal Society, what is it, Lord Keynes, and uh, a correspondent of the New York Times, the science correspondent. So very good group. And we walked away five days later with a feeling of almost that we need to have sort of a religious-like uh, dedication to solving that problem. It's so difficult. And the scientific problems of climate, no matter how complicated and complex they are, are easy compared to the political problem of having a global collaboration on that. And uh, and I feel that that may be the... The same as a sort of like a warlike dedication to solving a very, very difficult problem. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.